0: Hi, this is Isaac Arthur, welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream, get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. Our future lies out among the stars, but to get there, we are going to need gateways. Space stations are ubiquitous in science fiction and almost all discussions of our future, and yet with the ISS having already exceeded its planned lifetime, and no successor yet built, or even formally planned and funded. I thought it might be nice to ask what we're looking for in our next space station and what might accommodate those needs. It's easy to forget that the ISS, or International Space Station, is actually our ninth inhabited space station since only Mir operated for a long time, for 15 years from 1986 to 2001. Skylab and the various Salyut space stations had mixed successes as long-term orbital facilities in the 1970s and 80s. And while we often discuss bigger and bolder stations on this show, we tend to skip over the gap between a successor to the ISS and truly massive fails like the Bono Sphere, O'Neill Cylinder, or the more modest Kalpana design, which we'll discuss toward the end of the episode, along with the Lunar Gateway. The eponymous Brick Moon, appearing in Edward Everett Hale's 1869 sci fi novella of the same name, is the first known depiction of an inhabited artificial satellite, serving in the role of a navigational aid long before GPS had been imagined. Since then, there have been hundreds of station designs conceived, with some predating even the famous von Braun wheel design. We'll be showing a lot of diagrams and animations of them while we discuss space stations in this episode, though today we're less interested in specific designs than critical purposes and features. We may devote future episodes to specific space station designs, though truth be told, I would not expect any of the current space station designs to become a reality without a lot of modification. One big thing to keep in mind is that the next space station probably needs to be cheaper than the ISS, which would cost a couple hundred billion dollars in the currency of today. I don't think any countries, let alone corporations, are interested in forking over that kind of cash again in the near future, even if it was for a bigger and cooler station. As an upside though, the next space station can get its components into space more cheaply, especially if we can use material that can be flown up in existing rockets and essentially plugged in or plugged together. The ISS is around 400,000 kilograms, and the old space shuttle used to run about 55,000 per kilogram, by some estimates, meaning that to get the stuff into low Earth orbit back then was around 20 times more expensive than it would currently cost. Though it's worth noting that there's always some debate on calculating those figures, projecting for new launch systems in terms of optimal usage and production and so on, if we had to redo the ISS now we could do it better and for less, But we don't actually want to or need to redo the ISS. We are interested in what the future holds, and what a station that might fit our eventual needs for research, habitation, or expansion might eventually look like. As an example, we often assume the next station will need to be integrated into a plan for returning to the Moon or going to Mars, in which case a rotating section providing simulated Martian or lunar gravity might seem handy. And yet building a space station for a single mission to either probably isn't an ideal use of resources, Nor do we really need to simulate lunar gravity, since the moon is only a few days of travel away and we can't skip that step in favor of just building a lunar base and seeing how folks fare. Mars is a different matter though, since the astronauts would be stuck there for many months. Having both lunar and Martian gravity simulated on the same station might have some utility though, since you could essentially acclimatize folks in stages simply by spacing rings at different distances outward from the center of a rotating wheel but in this case you're really getting it as a bonus for making use of otherwise empty construction space. Rotating sections for stations and long duration space travel might seem critical to avoiding all the problems of zero gravity, but that rotation in itself presents some potential issues. Trying to match a space station's rotating wheel up to a non-rotating section is problematic, and an entirely rotating space station has one key problem. The whole thing has gravity even if it diminishes to next nothing near the axis of rotation. The reason this poses a problem is that one of the main purposes of space stations has been to run zero gravity experiments, and having any form of simulated gravity would skew your results. Indeed having multiple sources of gravity, as would be the case for a station opening Earth, could be the source of additional errors. We're hardly done doing those experiments and they're arguably a lot more important as a whole than checking the effects of lower motion and Lunar Gravity. Trying to do all that with a rotating section connected to a non-rotating one would create additional problems both in terms of cost and technical challenges, which would likely be solved by simply having separate stations instead. Now the good news is that we do finally have a new space station under construction, the Chinese Tiangong Space Station has its first module up there as of this spring, 2021, 23 years after the first module for the ISS was sent up. However due to the geopolitical issues here on Earth, this is a single country effort, and while I'd love to see several national space stations, the one big upside of the ISS was that it was international and collaborative, even if it wasn't in any way spread equally in terms of cost or control, so I'm not sure Tiangong would qualify as a successor to the ISS, even if it's successful, and it's also much smaller, closer to mirror in size, when our nominal goal is for a bigger and bolder successor. Though that in itself might raise a valid point. Perhaps we should consider using many smaller stations rather than one big one. This also is a few key points on the practical side. First, do we need an international station? Second, who is paying for it? Third, is there an it and should we really be thinking in a singular way? And finally, what purpose or purposes might such a platform serve? On the international front, I would argue that we don't necessarily need a multinational station. It would have upsides and downsides, as we found with the ISS, but we also don't really have international satellites, a given nation or company owns them, and indeed the actual modules for the ISS are the responsibilities of the nations that launched them under the Outer Space Treaty. Personally, I like multinational efforts, but they invariably create a lot of political and bureaucratic issues. Multi-decade programs require multi-decade funding and interest, and multi-entity control generates a lot of problems, including hurt feelings of being asked to do more than your fair share, or being pushed out of control or not benefiting as much as another party. These are hard to avoid since they are at least somewhat subjective. The other half of that is asking if we even want this to be government owned at all, much less multi-government owned. We have seen a lot of renewed interest, success, and innovation in space in recent years from the private sector, with SpaceX and its peers. Traditional multinational efforts might be done just as well or better on a station built and owned by a corporation, which rents out its facilities to others, and saves on a lot of red tape. On the flip side, one of the nice things about the ISS is that nobody could be doing anything very nefarious like secretly moving orbital weapons platforms on board, because it was internationally controlled and monitored from multiple sources. In the context of multiple stations, we might also want to consider that we don't actually need to have modules which are physically connected. One station might be a docking and habitable section, with a dozen interchangeable experiment modules simply lashed on by tethers and reached by spacewalk if something goes wrong. By and large, as robotics and automation improve, most of the internal operations for experiments could be monitored, performed, and tinkered with by one or more small robots. The same goes for external repairs, especially given how clunky spacesuits are and how little manual dexterity they offer. In that case, your international or corporate space station focused on scientific research is really just a maintenance crew for handling experimental modules and anomalies. You launch the module and they attach it to the hub, possibly with a tether that also serves as a power and communication cable, thus cutting out two of the big issues with isolated experiments in space, namely running out of fuel and needing to carry their own power and communications. The other side of this is space tourism. With a space hotel essentially being manned by definition, requiring safe and easy transport for humans around its interior, regardless of how many modules might be involved. Down on Earth, the idea of having a research lab next to or inside of a resort would seem absurd, and the only reason we even contemplate for space stations right now is this assumption that the station needs to be multi-purpose, and because so many folks interested in space tourism are also geeks. Your typical tech millionaire who might contemplate travel to space would probably enjoy helping out with an experiment as much as trying their hand at zero-gravity sports, but beyond those early days of space tourism, we should assume there would be little to no overlap between space-based R&D and tourism, and thus little point in having them at the same facility. Similarly, differing areas of research rarely need the same kinds of lab space, and D for various reasons might require entirely different environmental constraints. Outside of fiction, there's not a lot of standardized lab gear, and you don't have beakers lying around every type of lab, let alone every type of experiment, heck even the trademark scientist lab coat isn't universal. I've only worn one three times myself, once just trying one on, once for a photo op, and once for a visit to a biology lab with heavy safety restrictions. It's not something the typical theoretical physicist tends to wear, any more than a mathematician or history professor would. They are cheap and a fairly disposable bit of easily donned clothing, whose color makes it clear when you spill junk on it. But even though they're a commonly recognized symbol of all science in the public sphere, even something as simple and utilitarian as a lab coat is just one example of how requirements can differ in reality from what we might imagine. I've never seen anyone wear one on the ISS for instance. In our episode discussing whether we should first go to Mars or back to the Moon, we talked about how even these two seemingly similar projects actually have very limited overlap between them. Labs are the same, so while we have a concept in science fiction of more purpose-built space stations, trade stations, fuel depots, research facilities, and so on, we probably need to acknowledge that an object in orbit, that is purpose-built for research, isn't likely to be some sort of all-purpose lab, but more like the Hubble Space Telescope and its various kindred, with each one dedicated to a particular use. An experiment-specific, or possibly lab-specific environment, like a zero-g fish tank to see how fish adapt to swimming around in a giant tank of water with no gravity or pressure difference, could be used to see how many different marine organisms and even ecosystems might operate in microgravity, but while that's great for fish, it's going to have specific design features for those projects and probably isn't going to be useful for seeing how birds live in that environment or how microgravity affects early childhood development. This is not to say that you can't mix and match, a space hotel might be a good place to conduct studies on how the environment of space impacts human behavior, but I think in general we want to move away from the assumption that the successor to the ISS is going to be an all-purpose multinational affair, and more toward the idea that the next space station is likely to be plural in some sense. Such being the case, it's probably more logical to ask which type of space station will be built next, what's most likely to be the first of this hopeful constellation of new space stations, and why. Tiangong might then qualify as the next space station, but in many ways it's essentially parallel to Mir, Skylab, and the ISS, as a small all-purpose station. It's also currently in progress so for now we'll turn our eye to other options. There's a controversial sentiment I've heard fairly often and partially agree with that says essentially that an all-purpose space station can attempt any purpose but excel at none, and there are similar comments about this or that design for a new military aircraft carrier, or naval cruiser, or any number of other projects including software platforms. Over-generalizing is often as bad an idea as over-specializing, but generalizing and specializing are often useful. Since a manned station would be able to share a lot of the same facilities, there is a lot to be said for a single big one that can serve multiple purposes. So which one will it be? Specialized stations or a big hub in which many specialized tasks might occur? Alternatively, might it be some sort of splitting of the difference? For instance, while a city is a generalized hub, a university campus is a mix of general and specialist, focusing in the broad category of research and teaching. And of course over time often adds things to the campus or its periphery that's more generalized. Universities aren't just labs or housing complexes, and most of them manage to function just fine with this type of multitasking, it's just that we don't usually consider it in that light. There's a time factor on any space station too, in the sense they can grow and evolve in purpose, though such changes might incur additional expenses depending on how extensively that focus shifts. But any station which specializes in mining asteroids might mutate over time into a city in which mining is minimal, even as many mining settlements in our own past grew into something else, and this applies to all sorts of different examples from logging camps to military outposts, and thus we might expect it to apply to space settlements too. But that constitutes long-term growth, not near future. What does the next space station need? Some features seem obvious, like a docking hub to allow people to move from ship to station, Though ironically this was not a feature on most of the early space stations, with crew instead being transferred by spacewalk from ship to station. Improvements in spacesuits or airlocks might negate or diminish the need for these. It also might not be entirely necessary to have a docking hub on every station, such as with the Tendo station model we had mentioned earlier, where hundreds of modules might be attached by tether and mostly overseen and visited either remotely or robotically. Indeed, in such a case, the hub might actually be a spaceship that simply cycles out occasionally by passing those tethers to the next manned ship, like passing a cluster of balloons. So even this seemingly obvious feature of a docking connection to allow unsuited travel between ships and modules should not necessarily be taken as a given. Tied in with other assumptions we often make about space stations the idea of how we'll recycle air and water. Contrary to what science fiction might suggest, it won't necessarily be the case that all long-term facilities and ships will make use of plants for recycling the air and water, though I feel like this is going to be one of those big characteristics of ships and stations, as we move from brief visits to space to actually living there, since having actual plants on board will allow us to recycle air, water, and also produce some fresh food. But just as we rarely see more than the occasional house plants in the typical workspace, we should not necessarily assume that air and water recycling will be done in this fashion on your typical smaller station. For most of those, carbon dioxide scrubbers and filters for air and water are generally going to take up less space and resources, and most importantly be more reliable, keeping them more attractive for those smaller applications. And it's worth noting that while space is huge, there's a reason why spaceships and stations are currently small and fairly light since as it stands mass is a bigger bottleneck on our space construction than cost of materials. It takes a lot of material to build walls and hulls and shielding, and with our current technology that's all very expensive to bring up from the surface. We might expect this to change as we start developing real space infrastructure and get into mining resources from the Moon and asteroids, but right now we're still looking at price tags around $1000 a kilogram, and that's down a lot from when the ISS was being built but once we make that step toward obtaining resources from space instead of Earth, and building things off planets, we can start talking about making those big space habitats and O'Neill Cylinders. The issue of launch cost is also why we often saw space station designs that reused booster rockets during the era of the Space Shuttle. You've got a great big cylinder floating around in orbit with about 2000 cubic meters of internal volume, more than the entire ISS. And that presumably can be retrofitted into a space station module to save a lot on fuel and effort, while also managing some of our space debris. In truth this was a lot easier said than done, hence why it hasn't been done, but it was always a temptation and one that probably could have been made a reality. However with the new age of reusable rockets moving to include even the upper stage booster, this is likely to end this option. So we have four main concepts here in terms of recycling, the forces is that a shift in technology can alter the dynamic of what provides discounts for construction. No empty booster rockets milling around orbit means no easy access to empty ones to reuse. In the same way, setting up cheap solar shade production on the Moon a few decades from now might allow us to reuse damaged ones as whole components, wrapping them around a structure like a protective cocoon. Second, it reminds us that while one man's trash is another man's treasure, sometimes the process of repurposing it is ultimately more problematic than it might initially seem. Third, it reminds us of this space debris issue, and that as a consequence we also need to be thinking of how to better protect astronauts from the general hazards of space, everything from radiation to micrometeorites and even bits of junk. A thicker hull is probably the easiest way to go here, but more weight means more money, unless we're making use of stuff we already have up there. Even then more weight means more orbital correction requiring more fuel. And finally, recycling on board would be useful, but probably only in cases where the equipment is going to get enough use to justify the mass and maintenance requirements of tools for repair and reprocessing, so I'm not expecting to see something like a large hydroponic setup on the next station. This might be less true if we get a big space tourism industry going, and there's a chance that will take off soon. A lot of recycling gear for any type of waste does better at larger scales, so a facility of three or four astronauts benefits less from having these than one with three or four crew and ten or twenty guests. We do not know what the price point for stable space tourism would be, but we do know that Virgin Galactic has already booked several hundred people at a ticket price of around a quarter of a million dollars apiece, and there are over a million people who make more than a million bucks annually and might look seriously into doing that. So as surprising as it might seem, we might already be at or near the price point for discussing larger stations. If I can have a hotel with 10 folks at any given time for say a week at a time, that's just 520 people a year. Would that be a separate station or separate module or something integrated into a larger station? Probably the latter if for no other reason than sharing all the costs and diversifying the investment. The other big business case for the relatively near term is going to be manufacturing in space, we don't know where the space industry will take off to the point we can actually manufacture stuff there, though we have examined several plausible options in our episode on Kickstarting Space Industry. There is suddenly a catch-22 to space-based production, where often the demand that justifies a new economic sector, focused in space, can't exist until after other space-based infrastructure exists, which themselves rely on other demands. But if we're confident we're going back to the Moon or Mars, or the main intent is to cheaply gather metals for power satellites or solar shades, then a factory and port for that in orbit is a justifiable expense, and just represents an early investment to prove and prototype the process for future development. Which brings us to the Lunar Gateway, or simply The Gateway. This is an upgrade and adaptation of the Deep Space Habitat design from about a decade back, which is being proposed as part of the new Artemis program to return to the Moon. The basic notion is to place a space station around the Moon, and there's a lot going for that. I've heard folks object to the idea on the grounds that we should be returning to the Moon itself, not building a space station there, but there's a reason why all the Apollo missions involved orbiting the Moon and sending down a vehicle. I think it makes a lot more sense to have some waypoints established first, and the same applies for Mars. If you have a sort of relay system where folks can train, resupply, or have assistance along the way. It decreases the amount of stuff you have to bring with you for the longer journey, which ultimately translates to lower costs over time. A semi-permanent presence in the orbit of the Moon would ultimately make doing missions there and getting established on the surface a lot easier in the future. Plus, after waiting 50 years to go back, a short delay to establish a station seems a minor wait. We also aren't interested in just landing and poking around there, we want to be back there forever. We would want to set up real industry there, and a space station orbiting the Moon is good for that. I think the Gateway has a lot going for it starting with being rather modest but also committing us to going back to the Moon and in a big way. For less modest options we have options like the Kalpana 1 station. This obviously isn't going to be our next space station. But to remind reminder of what we're aiming for and what we can achieve if we get a moon or asteroid mining operation on the go, or build up a space tourism and orbital construction industry. It's a stepping stone not just to the Moon but toward larger settlements like the Stanford Taurus, Bernal Sphere, or O'Neill Cylinder, but where the ISS is around 400 tons, Kalpana is around 10,000 times that, with some estimates putting it as much as 7 megatons. With launch costs at 1000 dollars per kilogram, or a million dollars per ton, you'd still be looking at 7 trillion dollars in launch costs, more than 30 times what the ISS cost. With an intended 3000 residents, you'd have to charge more than 2 billion dollars per resident just to get the thing off the ground. I imagine this is probably off the table for most folks, so a project like this definitely needs to be one where you're sourcing the mass from somewhere else or else finding a way to vastly decrease launch costs from where they are today but that being said, it's not as far off as it might seem and may well be something that could happen in this century. The good news is that we're really moving forward again with space, the ISS may be past its original exploration date but it's still running strong, China is busy building a new one not just planning it, and the Artemis Program and Gateway Station look like they are likely going to happen. Fundamentally though, as I said near the start, It's not about what the next space station will be in a singular sense, but what the future of space stations looks like as a whole in the coming decades. In the next 10 years or so, we are likely to see multiple space stations functioning at the same time, and it won't be long before folks can't just say, the space station like we do today, without getting a lot of confused looks. The future will likely be one of an increasing number of increasingly specialized structures in space, that time is coming sooner than many might believe. And with it getting launched this decade, it's definitely going to be fun to live through. We were talking about space hotels in passing today, and folks often ask me to do an episode on space food, and we might one day do one. But in the meantime, there is a great discussion of the challenges of cooking in space with famous chef Heston Blumenthal over on Curiosity Stream. Now we do have an extended edition today available on Nebula, where we'll spend a few minutes discussing the Stanford torch design and the Burner Sphere as alternatives to the O'Neill Cylinder or Kalpana. I think we will end up giving each their own episode at some point, but I keep not getting around to it and want to in this episode, but the reality is neither is a legit candidate for our next space station. The nice thing about the extended editions on Nebula is I don't have to worry as much my rabbit trails or tangents get a bit off topic. If you didn't already know, Nebula is our new streaming service full of awesome content from STEM creators like Real Engineering, Mustard, Answers with Joe, MKBHD, Renee Ritchie, and a bunch of others including a lot of awesome non-STEM content like Devin from Legal Eagle, and the notion of all having extended editions replacing our sponsor reads in our episodes was Devin's idea as I recall. Our episodes on this show appear early and ad-free on Nebula, and some have extended editions too, plus we have some Nebula exclusives like our Coexistence with Alien series. Now you can subscribe to Nebula all by itself, but we've also partnered up with CuriosityStream, the home of thousands of great educational videos, to offer Nebula for free as a bonus if you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in our episode description. That lets you see content, like Heston's Dinner in Space, and watch all the other amazing content on CuriosityStream, and also all the great content over on Nebula from myself and many others, and you can get all of that for less than $15 by using the link in the episode's description. So this wraps us up for today but not for the week as we have our mid-month Sci-Fi Sunday episode, Alien Artifacts and Zenoarchaeology, this weekend on August 15th. Then next week we'll look at Fusion Propulsion Designs and Concepts for Spaceships before closing the month out by heading all the way out to the edge of the Universe on Thursday, August 26th, then we'll have our monthly livestream Q&A on Sunday, August 29th at 4pm Eastern Time. If you want to us when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or on our website, IsaacArthur.net which are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. You can also follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify to get our audio-only versions of the show. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.